Amen. Thanks, Wazi. Morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you online. Um, won't you open up a Bible or a phone or something and head to Mark, Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 as we continue our journey through um, this wonderful gospel. Uh, I was looking ahead, uh, doing some advanced, uh, advanced sermon planning in Mark, and I'm already getting uh, sad that we're nearing the end of Mark. Uh, maybe you're not uh, as sad as I am. Maybe you're like, hallelujah, <laughs> we're nearing the end. There's still a few weeks left, though, so don't worry. We, uh, we're not going to skip through it that quickly, but uh, we're in a wonderful, a wonderful passage uh, this morning. It's a shorter passage than some of the other ones we've looked at recently. And as Dave said last week, we're moving into a section where Jesus uh, is dealing with a few sort of almost topical issues as he's teaching the disciples heading towards the cross. We're in the last little stage of Jesus' earthly ministry before he heads to the cross. And uh, the next few weeks, he's drilling into some really important things. And we're going to be looking at, uh, not like sort of topical preachers, we'll be going through each of the passages and stuff, but we're branching into a few different things. Uh, Just a note that in a couple weeks' time, uh, I think it's in two weeks' time, I'm going to be speaking on divorce. Not because I feel like it, but because it's the next thing that Jesus is speaking about here. So if you have questions or you're interested or uh, you're confused, make sure you're here. I think it's on the 10th. Uh, I don't normally advertise what we're going to speak on, but I just know that that's because what's coming in the Bible. And divorce is a big deal for a lot of people, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion. So that's coming up on the 10th. Anyway, today, Mark 9 from verse 30. Let's have a look at that together. We'll pick, up it, pick it up in verse 30, go through to verse 37. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did, not any, he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come uh, to your word, as wise you was already praying, we pray for eyes that are open to see and, and hearts that are uh, open to receive. We thank you again and again. We never want to approach your word without pausing and acknowledging that you have given us the Holy Spirit as a teacher. Um, and we look to you now, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us that would cause your words to come to life again in our hearing, that you would speak to us and give us a, an ability, the capacity to hear your voice to us, hear your word to us, that we would be challenged and encouraged and established 
and equipped through uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word this morning. We need this more than we need anything else. We're not smart enough to see. We think we know what this passage means. Um, our hearts are always in so many different places, and we come and we pray that you would still our hearts in your presence now and open up our ears to hear from the living God. We look to you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we, um, before we dive into what Jesus is teaching here, um, I want to have a look at um, some of this context here. Uh, these guys, it's, it's not a long passage. They, they're journeying with Jesus, uh, and they're having a massive argument about who's the greatest. And when you read it, you think, like, this is just true to form for the disciples, isn't it? To some degree. Like, they just, they're constantly having moments like this where they're just doing very undisciple-like kinds of things. Uh, it, well, at least in our minds. And we can be very hard on the disciples and look at this and think, no, nah, guys, man, what are you doing? You know, you're meant to be the founding, they're going to be the founding fathers, the cornerstones of the church, and here they are having an extended argument about who's the greatest. It's not exactly, you know, kind of hard posture you want in the leaders of the early church. But I think it's understandable how they got to this. Remember, here's some context. Just had, a couple of weeks ago, we had, well, not weeks in the story, but it's days in this story, but a couple of weeks for us preaching, Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and he reveals some of his glory to just three of them. Okay, just three of them. It's the most transformative thing for those three men. They, they come down the mountain and who do they bump into? They bump into the rest of the disciples. Uh, I'm skipping one little passage. They bump into the rest of the disciples as they come down. And what have those disciples been doing? They've been trying to drive a demon out of a boy. And they haven't been able to do it. And they, like, eventually Jesus gets the job done, and then he's explaining. I think he was preaching this last week, Dave. Preaching there, like, why couldn't we do it? And he says, this, only, this can't only come out um, by, by prayer. And some versions say prayer and fasting. So you've got some disciples who've had a mountaintop experience, seen the glory of the Lord, and you've got the rest of the team down the mountain failing Exorcism 101. Okay, now they're taking a road trip. And naturally, as guys do, they're discussing uh, how the last few days have gone down. Jesus told the three on the mountain, look, don't say anything about this. This is our little secret here kind of thing. You know? Don't tell anyone until I rise from the dead. Just, just keep quiet. And they actually did, I think. But still in their hearts is this kind of like, <laughs> we are in, the three of us. And now they're hearing the rest of the clowns couldn't drive this demon out. You know, definitely places booked. One, two, three, these oaks are in there. They're the favorites of the favorites. And just to prove the point, these oaks are failing at disciple school. One and one, they can't even drive a demon out. Jesus has to like lean in and take over. They're, all they're thinking, remember, is their future, future kingdom expectation. Jesus is going to establish the earthly kingdom as a Messiah. And these are the 12 who he's going to have as his men, his team around him. And they're arguing amongst themselves who, who's the greatest in this team, jockeying for position. It's perfectly understandable how they got there. And it's perfectly understandable because if you and I were disciples, we would be doing exactly the same thing. Because in your heart and in my heart, you find these exact same things. You find uh, ambition. Everyone is ambitious in a different way. We're just ambitious about different things. All of us have pride hardwired into our hearts. 
You don't have to encourage pride in people. I don't have to go to people and say, you know what, I'd, I'd really love it if you could just prefer your own needs above the needs of others and think more highly of yourself than others. That would be great if you could do that. You don't have to do that. That is the opposite that is like a miraculous intervention on, uh, from God. I wrote this down around pride. We are so prone to confuse God's blessings with our brilliance. We are so prone to confuse God's blessings with our brilliance. God blesses your life and you look around and you think, look at me. You may not say that out loud because you're too, um, you know, guarded and sophisticated and spiritually mature. But we're thinking in our hearts, look at me instead of look at God. That's our default is to look at ourselves and to have our eyes trained on our own brilliance instead of God's blessing on us. It's so natural for us to compare ourselves to others. You don't have to work hard. We go through this every single day. You're always, we are always comparing ourselves to somebody else. And not only is this destructive, it's sinful. I don't know who it was who said the comparison is the thief of joy. They were right. You can't be enjoying something if you're comparing it to something else. It's like, oh, oh gosh, like you're having a great time, but you just, all you need to do is open Instagram. You can be having the greatest time. Go scroll through your Instagram feed, and somebody's having a better time than you. You'd be like, I was having a great time until I saw how great a time they're having. Now, your joy evaporates from your, from your lack of time. Now, you're not having a lack of, such a lack of time anymore. Comparison will kill you. Uh, it'll steal your joy, but it's a sin because we're always looking. It's hard to love people when you're trying to get ahead of them. And we, want, we don't do it in such overt ways, but that stuff is hardwired into us. And so we're, we have a lot in common with the disciples. And you can easily understand how this conversation Pops up. And what Jesus is going to address today is this whole issue of ambition. This whole issue of ambition. So let's have a look at five different things that Jesus addresses here and teaches us and helps us with. The first thing, as we look at this issue of uh, ambition, and I'm going to say ambition and desire for greatness. Because when I say the word ambition, sometimes people are like, well, I'm not that ambitious. I'm sort of happy with where I am. But I think we all have some desire to be great in some way in some area, in some part, um, or to be thought of as great. The first um, thing we see here is that Jesus doesn't rule out ambition. Jesus doesn't rule out ambition. What does he say to them when he busts them? I mean, this is such a lucky uh, interaction, isn't it? I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I could get really lost in these kinds of things. I love them. But Jesus asked them, you know, what, what were you guys talking about on the road? And he knows, you know, and they just all keep quiet. They're all like looking at each other, like, who's going to tell him? Kind of thing, like, no, I'm not going to tell him. Like, because they, they've been caught red-handed, having a foolish argument about how great they are. And he calls them out, and he already knows. And the shame washes up on their shores again. And I just want to park this quickly before we move on. That one of the things hidden in this story is the fact that the, the sinful shameful things that you do don't disqualify you from being a disciple of Jesus. The sinful, shameful things that you do don't disqualify you from being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at them and say, you see, you bunch of clowns, I know exactly what you were talking about. Gone. I'm getting another team. I'm going to find the next 12 because you Muppets are just, I give up. He doesn't do that with them, does he? It's in, the, it's in there. And you can skip over it easily but I mention it because again and again, I see in my own heart and the hearts of many Christ followers, 
that when your sin and your shame wash over the shores again, you feel the waves of doubt crashing over, can I do this? Can I follow Jesus faithfully? Am I fit to be a disciple? Can God use me? And the answer to that is yes, because it's not about you, it's about him. It's not about you, it's all about him. So back to this first point. He doesn't do away with ambition. What is his response when he catches them out? He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He gives them an answer. He says, if anyone wants to be first, if you desire greatness and ambition, this is how you do it. He doesn't say, if you want to be first, bad idea. Put that out of your mind. Don't ascribe, for, don't desire greatness or ambition of any sort, just like under the radar, just exist. Just exist. Stay alive. Don't dare anything great. He doesn't say that. What he does, we'll look in the next one, is he reorientates, he reframes what ambition and greatness is all about and how you get there. But he doesn't squash it. And I want to say, I want to celebrate this. And I say, we need people who are ambitious. We need people who desire greatness. The world doesn't move forward without people who are ambitious and want to do things. They want to invent things. They want to go to new places. They want to create. And they want to lead others to do things. If we don't have people like that, we go nowhere. It's a, it's a God-glorifying image of God thing in a human being to want to make a significant impact. You don't, don't honor God and glorify God by just existing. And he, he, he doesn't squash this uh, ambition. He just rather redirects it. I just want to clarify that again, that it's not God-honoring or God-glorifying to just exist, to never dare anything for God, to never dream of how he could use you, to never employ and use your gifts and your talents and your skills for the greater glory of God and the advancement of humankind and the kingdom mission of God on earth. There's nothing um, wonderful about that. I, I actually think we're squashing some of the image of God in us when we do that. When we just like, we just exist. We just, like, non, I'm not going to say oxygen thief because that's, that's not right. But you find some people who just, they almost like apologize for their existence. Well, you know, I, don't, I don't want to be proud or whatever else. I'm just, you know, it's like it's, it's a different kind of pride because it's still all about you. It's still all about you. You've just got it all upside down. You don't have to apologize for your existence. God put you on earth and he gave you gifts and talents to bless others and to contribute to the world. Find out what they are and use them. It's the, the problem that you see in the scriptures that Paul points out again and again in his letters. If you just do a word, ser a word search for selfish ambition, you see Paul uses that term and he addresses it and James addresses it and Paul addresses it three times in three different letters. The problem is selfish ambition, not ambition. Selfish ambition, where the ambition, once all the eyes turned on you, where the, the, the driver is you moving forward, not others moving forward, not blessing others with the things God has put in you and through you. It's a selfish ambition. It's all about putting ourselves at the middle. Ambition that's fueled by sin never results in anything that's God-glorifying. Ambition that's fueled by sin and self never results in anything that's God-glorifying. That's where we need so much of God's help in this. So the first thing is that we see that Jesus doesn't squash ambition. He does rather, second point, he points to a different path to greatness. He's pointing out a different path, path to greatness. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. I mean, this is, this is mental. 
You're not going to hear this anywhere else. You're not. Any self-help book that you buy or course or whatever, Tony Robbins vibe that you go to, is the Tony Robbins that guy who gets all excited and winds everyone up? You're not going to hear this there. You're not. You're going to hear it in the Bible because this is countercultural Jesus kind of stuff. He must be lost and servant of all. Some of us are okay with being mid-table, like Arsenal soccer fans. Actually, that's unkind. Arsenal are like, uh, what's the relegation zone at the moment? I shouldn't mention. What is a, I don't know much about soccer. Who's a, re, a mid-table team? Newcastle? No, they're not. They're lower. Man City? Huh? Man U. Oh, Man U. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Shots fired. Um, okay. Wait. So a mid-table team. Yeah, there's a lot of people who, you might be sitting here thinking, you know, Doug, I don't, I don't really connect with this. I don't want to be top of the table. I don't, I'm okay not to be top of the table. But I don't want to be at the bottom of the table. I don't want to be there with Southampton or whatever it is who's at the bottom. You dropped to the second league. You know, I don't want to be last. I just want to be mid-table. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying mid. He's saying last. We're okay serving some, aren't we? He says there, what, servant of? All. There's no weird Greek words here, misinterpretations. This is Soma English, straight up servant of all. And I see in my own heart, I'm happy. I am happy to serve a lot of people. But I'm not happy to serve all. There needs to be a miracle, the work of God in my life, to help me to want to serve all. Because just like you, I find there are people in my life who I don't want to serve. I don't think they're worthy of my service because I'm above them. I'm mid-table, they're the bottom of the table. That's why Jesus says, if you, want, if you want to be first, this is the countercultural teaching of Jesus, you have to be last and the servant of all. And I want to say right out the gates here with these words of Jesus that with, this is impossible. This is impossible without the help of God. It really, it really is. Unless the gospel both changes our hearts to give us a desire for this and, and the Holy Spirit's ability to live like this, this is absolutely out of reach. Because just do a quick computation in your head of the people who you feel you're above and are unable to serve. It won't take you long at all. It really won't. Most of us think we're mid to upper table, definitely. We are not lost. We don't want to be lost. We go through school all the time. You know, when they hand out awards, what do they give? They don't hand out like badges for the bottom 20. They don't. Hey, with the bottom 20, please come to the quad. We're going to have a prize giving for the underachievers. They don't do that, man. They don't give you colors if you flip and failing. They don't have running races. <laughs> like, hey, okay, okay, you're lost. You understand? They don't do that. We celebrate coming first all the time. From the time that you take your first steps, it's a competition and a comparison. Go, go, go. And that's so wired into us that when you hear Jesus say, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be first, you are the servant of all. There's something in us that just says, that's, that's not going to happen. And yet, that's what it means. That is the call and the power of the gospel is that it reorientates selfish, self-centered human beings 
and fills them with the Spirit of God and enables us to serve people imperfectly, but with radical impact. The third thing that we see here is that Jesus illustrates his point with a child. He says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And Jesus is the best teacher. He's got a, an object lesson. He's got a kid standing there. He calls the kid to stand in, in front of him. He's just, and he's sitting there. He's teaching his disciples. He gets the kid there. And he says he gives the kid a hug. Verse 36, he took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Why does Jesus use a child to make his point? I mean, he's just teaching you, why did you just keep going? Say, did you, do you guys get any questions? You know, he's like, he's dr- dr- drilling this home. Why a kid? Well, back then, this is where we need, um, we need to get our heads in the context here. Back then, children were thought of as like, Phew. I, Think of how obsessed our culture is these days with kids. Think the exact opposite. And that's what it was like then. Now everything is about the children. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm going to get myself into all kinds of trouble here, kind of thing, because I think my kids are even here somewhere. But uh, these days, children's rights, the house revolves around the kids. Everything is the kids, helicopter parents. We worship our children almost in our culture now. Back then, not so much. Kids were like, phew. The elderly, man, the elderly, that's where the honor was, not with the children. He puts a kid amongst the disciples, and they're like, what are you doing with a kid? He says, unless you welcome one of these, when you do, you welcome welcome me. Jesus, again and again, not just here, but he always uses kids. He's often using kids to illustrate a point because kids were just not honored. They weren't treated well um, then, and I, I, I think... Um, there's a few different interpretations of what Jesus means here. Some people think that Jesus is talking about how we welcome actual children, like physical kids under a certain age. Some people think it's how we, that he's talking more about how we welcome spiritual children, like immature believers, how you treat immature believers who come into your church or into your circle. Others believe that it's a catch-all for like what Jesus would call the least of these people who are the least on the margins, um, the least of these. And, and I actually lean more in that direction. I think it's not just, I think it's not just literal children. I don't think it's just immature beliefs. I think it's a catch-all for anyone who you would put in the bucket of the least of these. Anyone who is less than, less mature than you, younger than you, kids, whatever else. But you've got to think, his disciples are looking at him thinking, okay, he's talking about us being a servant of all, so he's sort of saying we would have to serve these kids. This would be a challenge for the disciples. Because this is a kid. Like they, don't, they don't serve. They don't honor. They don't lo- like maybe they love them, but they don't elevate them. Why? I, I want to put it in this way. What makes serving kids tough? Because I think if you connect that to this, it's easy. What makes serving kids tough? Some of you don't have kids, so this is more sort of advanced notice of what's coming down the pipeline for you. Uh, what makes serving kids tough? Kids are often entitled. Kids are often entitled. They expect you to serve them. They just somehow wake up in the morning and yell. Hey! What, like they need this. They click. They, the, you have to teach kids to say please and thank you. You do. You have to say, say please, say thank you. Because they just somehow expect when they want something, someone is going to come running with what they need. 
They learn this from a young age when they're young and they cry and someone comes running and they poop and then someone changes them. You don't leave them to do that stuff. You do all of that. They grow up entitled. Someone's going to help me. And they expect that to happen. It's difficult to serve people who expect your help because it makes you feel like a what? A servant. Yeah, it does. They're not saying thank you. They're not reimbursing you. Every time you change their nappy, yeah, get your Cocoa Pops. Yeah, mom, here's 20 bucks. Thanks for running up down to the kitchen again. They just somehow expect that you would love to do that. And it can make you feel like a servant. And I think that's Jesus' exact point here. So when you serve people who are entitled, it does something to us. Kids have no social clout back then, especially. Serving kids doesn't get you ahead. Like, hey, oh, they can put in a good word for you somewhere. You're like, oh, you helped me out that time, whatever else. It's like, no, they're just kids. They just expect you to do whatever else. They're not serving them. It's not going to elevate your position, not going to get you ahead or whatever. Often doing stuff for kids, they can't reciprocate. So they can't help you in return. You've helped them. And it's like, okay, well, no, when I need help, I'm not going to call you because you're unable to help me. It's a one-way kind of service. There's a lot else we could go into. I deep dive on this, and, and, I, and I love serving our kids. I'm more drawing the correlation here between I think Jesus chooses a kid to show that serving them is difficult, unrewarding, because of the nature of kids and the nature of serving, what, what serving them is like. Somebody said this, this quote has been misattributed to a million people, so I don't actually know who actually said it. They said, you can easily judge a person by how they treat those who could do nothing for them. Easily judge a person by how they treat somebody who, does, who can do nothing for them. Think of the people in your life who can do nothing for you. Do we treat them with the same honor and respect? No, we don't. Often. We don't often. Again, I would say it's a miracle of God when we, when we do. Fourth point is that in this serving of the least of these, Jesus calls us to welcome them in his name. He says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. In his name. What does that mean? What does it mean to welcome the least of these in the name of Jesus? Well, I think there's, there's multiple ways in which we can do good things, aren't there? You see this again in the scriptures. And particularly if you take your notes right down Matthew 6, you can go read it again. Matthew 6, Jesus drills in three areas. He, he speaks about giving, praying, and fasting. Giving, praying, and fasting, all really good things. But back then, what was happening is the guys were giving, praying, and fasting in a way that they wanted everybody else to see what they were doing. They were doing good things, but the emphasis of the good was that others would see and know and praise them for the good that they're doing. Amazing. Look at you. Woo. Wow. And what, you know what Jesus says in Matthew 6? He says, they have reward in full. They have received the reward. There you go. The hand clapping praise and love of man is all you are getting for all you've done. When you stand before the Lord, don't expect anything from him. Because you didn't do it for him. You did it for the love and the praise of man. And their love and praise and adulation is all you are getting for what you've done. It's possible to do good things with the wrong heart motive and end up with the wrong reward. Um, when we talk about when Jesus says, welcome them in my name, it means in the character of Jesus. 
the character of Jesus is very different to living for the praise of men. You can do good things differently. We, we welcome them in his name. It's a completely different way of living, following the way of Jesus. Think, think about Jesus again. Who, what, what is one of the titles they, 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 they use as a slur against Jesus? Friend of who? Tax collectors and sinners. You know? He is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's, it's not like a, a banner you put on your CV, like friend of tax collectors. It's like a slur against him. Because those were outcasts. Those were the least of, at least morally. They were down the totem pole there. And Jesus is the friend of them. What, what is it about Jesus that makes sinners want to hang out with him? He calls Matthew. He calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew immediately leaves his tax collecting business. Done. And that evening, he's having dinner at his house with what? A whole bunch of his tax collecting friends and other sinners and Jesus. What is it about Jesus that makes tax collectors and sinners want to hang out with him? This is a particularly probing point because there's so much in the example and the spirit and the nature of Jesus that we don't live out. Christians are not known as this. Some Christians abandon fidelity and truth to God's word, and then they befriend of sinners. Everyone like, ah, you're, you're a Christian. Oh, but you're one of those Christians where everything goes. We dig your kind of Christian because you're not so fuss and all this kind of stuff and can't do this kind of like, you know. If you're that kind of a Christian, you've abandoned uh, truth, God's word, then all of a sudden everyone will love you kind of thing. You, on the other hand, you get the, the truth people. Um, we're true. You know, I have, can't have anything to do with you. The Bible says I mustn't eat with sinners. No, no, no. no. doesn't say that. It causes us to follow the way of Jesus, who is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And if you fall away on the side of truth or you fall away on the side of in bringing in everyone who's licentious without ever challenging them, we've both missed the way of Jesus. Jesus, somehow, the way of Jesus is somehow large enough to hold true to what God requires and yet have a heart that welcomes people in. And others are tax collectors and sinners, want to be with Jesus. That's the welcome in the name of Jesus. We treat others, everyone, with a servant of all. We treat everyone with the kindness and the love and the grace, the mercy that Jesus has for us and has for everyone. The last thing we see here is that when we welcome the least of these, we welcome God. That's what Jesus says. Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't, doesn't welcome me, but him who sent me, the Father. When you, when you welcome the least of these, who are we welcoming? We're welcoming the Son and the Father. If you want more of God in your life, welcome the least of these into your life. I'll say that again. If you want more of God in your life, welcome the least of these in the name of Jesus. That's Jesus' promise. We will come to you. You think you're welcoming that person. You are welcoming me and my Father. We come to you, as it were, through the ones who you think are the least. And that messes with our heads. It messes with us completely. This is difficult stuff that I'm talking about this morning. Because you know what happens? When we're doing well in this area, we lapse into pride. 
and we'll look at us, we're serving, we're serving the least of these so well. You know, I'm, I'm making great progress in my humility. You know, as soon as you think that, you've, you've lost it. Like, I'm, I think I'm getting much more humble. Really got a handle on pride. <laughs> Oops. So whenever we do well, we're actually not doing that well. And then um, when, when we don't think we can do it, we fall into a despair and disobedience. We're just like, well, I, I can't. I can't. And then we become disobedient because we've thrown in the towel. It's like, I can't live like that. And our only hope is to look at Jesus and to fixate on him. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, in the beholding is the becoming. As we behold him, we become like him. We look at him. And we put all of our hope in his work in us. Because this is the one who's leading us. The, the foot washer. The foot washer. Jesus is the object lesson king. Not long from this, he's going to do something that, that rattles them. Foot washing was the grossest thing reserved for servants. It was sif. I mean, if you think your feet are, are gross, these oaks' feet would outstrip any of your feet. Foot washing was a sif thing to do. And Jesus gives them an evening they will never forget where he kneels down and puts on the clothes of a servant. He clothes himself in servants' clothes and washes their feet. Every last one of them, even the ones who didn't want it done. So that they would never forget that this is what a servant looks like. And then he goes on from there to serve them on the cross. To serve them on the cross. He dies in their place for their sin and the sin of the whole world. That's what it means to be the servant of all. Is to follow Jesus who not just does serving for his disciples and washing their feet. He goes all the way to the cross and dies in their place for their sin and for us. And he's the ultimate example of what it means to be the last and the servant of all. And he can do that because he knows who he is. That's why he is first. Are you with me? That's why he is first, because he was lost. Because he served the whole world. He has now been given the name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God gave him the first name because he was willing to be lost and the servant of all. As we seek to follow Jesus faithfully in this, I don't have any magic tricks for you. All I know is that in following him, this is how it works. We come to him and we say, God, I cannot love and serve people like this. There's too much pride and self in me to live like this. And yet you have. And you've done this perfectly. And you've died on the cross to both forgive my inability to do this perfectly and to enable my ability to do it partially. And so all my hope is in you again. Would you please come and help me to follow you in this? Because it's not an optional call. Guys, it's not an optional call Look, if you, like, if you feel like getting involved in some kind of serving, uh, go for it. If it floats your boat on Mandela Day, give it a stab. No, no, no. It's the core to a radical way of living where our hearts live in a posture where others are before us and we are the servants of all. And one of the things that helps us is to train our hearts on grace. And I'm going to end with this, a quote from South African 
pastor, theologian from a couple of hundred years ago, Andrew Murray, who's written tons of really helpful books on prayer and humility and stuff. He said this, it needs to be made clear that it is not sin that humbles, but grace. It is the soul occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. I'm going to read it again because it takes a while to get what he's talking about here. It needs to be made clear that it's not sin that humbles, but grace. It's not just sin that humbles you, it's God's grace to you that humbles you. It's the soul that's occupied with God and his wonderful glory as both our creator and the one who has redeemed us that would truly take the lowest place before him. If you want to make progress in humility with a tender heart before God and others, this is where we live. We live here, eyes fixed on the grace that God has shown us as our creator and redeemer. And you live there, you live at the foot of cross marveling that we've been given a grace we never, ever deserved. And it enables us to take the lowest place before God and lower our place before people, which helps us to then serve them. There's no other trick to that, guys. There's no other five steps I can give you. It's just to camp out at the cross and keep your heart trained on grace and plead for God for the miraculous work of the Spirit to make us last and the servant of all. That in that, we would find ourselves strangely welcoming the Father and the Son in greater measure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you, um, you know our hearts better than we do. There's nothing in us that's, that's hidden from you. There's nothing unseen by your, by your eyes. There's nothing unknown by your complete knowledge of us. And thank you that that's, a, that's freeing for us this morning as we, as, as we sit before you. That even, though, even if we may not know the exact condition of our hearts and what we need, you, you see and you know. And, and even with all of your knowledge of who we are, there's not a rejection of us. There's a welcoming and there's a calling back again. And we worship you for that. We worship you for being a grace-giving God. Thank you, Father, for your mercy over us. And we, we pray this morning as we bring our hearts to you that are so often uh, turned in on ourselves, so often struggle to, to serve others. We're exactly like these disciples just arguing about who's the greatest and who's getting ahead. And we compare ourselves to others all the time. Father, we need the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit in our lives to turn our hearts again, to keep our, our eyes trained on the grace that's in Jesus Christ and to empower us to love and to serve others. And we pray that you would help us in this. Before you, we cry out to you this morning for help. We know that there is so much liberating power in being lost, in being able to serve others because we realize who we are in you and we're sent out into the world just to serve. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. You don't have to rush ahead. We don't have to try and see our, see our name in lights and achieve all of our goals. 
We want to do significant things for you, Father, but we know that you do that when we yield ourselves to you. And so collectively this morning, we do that again. We come and we yield our lives to you and say, would you do in us and through us what you long to do? Would you take glory to your own name through our lives as you humble us, as you work through us and as you transform our hearts to be the servants of all? How we long to welcome you as we do that. And we pray for your help and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name.